to pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your kindness to us in giving us the word of God. And Father, we can't help but reflect on the ease uh, at which we uh, buy Bibles and read Bibles and gather together and all of that. And we're certainly grateful. We know that we can be a people that very easily takes for granted blessings. And so I pray that even now as we think about the word of God that we realize how amazing it is, really awesome it is, that you, the very God of the universe, the creator of all that is, the one who is in perfect holiness, has condescended to reveal yourself to us, not only in creation, but most especially in our Lord Jesus Christ. And as you've written that down for us, in a book that we can read, and you've enabled us to learn how to read and to have books available to us, most especially this one. And so I pray now as we come to the scripture that it is no light thing in our eyes, but rather life to us. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Joshua in chapter 24. Joshua chapter 24. I want to read the first 15 uh, verses please. Joshua in chapter uh, 24. I'm sorry, I must have forgotten to say the children can leave now. I know what a surprise that is to all of us at this time. So, whatever alpha parent it was to actually get up and do that, I appreciate that a great deal. Uh, Joshua chapter 24 and verse 1. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, uh, Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, and they served other gods. And I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt." And you lived in the wilderness a long time. And then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak the son of Zippor the king of Moab arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam the son of Beor to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho. The leaders of Jericho fought against you. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgassites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Uh, and I gave them into your hand. 
And I sent the hornet before you and drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored in cities that you had not built and you dwelt in them. You eat the fruits of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I want to concentrate our attention this morning really on just that phrase in verse 14 that says, Now therefore, fear the Lord. Uh, at this point in time, as you remember, that Joshua is old. He's an old man. He's going to die. Uh, and he comes to, to, to share with um, the people his, his sort of final words. He and Caleb uh, are the elders, no doubt, in Israel. Uh, they, and in this case most especially we're thinking about Joshua, Joshua remembers Egypt. Uh, he remembers the slavery there. He remembers uh, the plagues. He remembers the first Passover. He remembers waking alive the next morning uh, after that first Passover, hearing the cries of the parents of the Egyptians whose sons uh, were killed during the night. Uh, He remembers the gathering of the people to leave. He remembers that when they left, all who were infirmed were healed. He remembers plundering the Egyptians and taking their wealth. He remembers then being led by the cloud by day, the fire by night, and he remembers going right to the edge of the Red Sea. And he remembers at that particular point in time that Pharaoh's army, that Pharaoh had changed his mind and the army came, and so he remembers then the parting of the Red Sea going across it, and he remembers the, the uh, army of Pharaoh drowning in that sea. He remembers the march to Mount Sinai, the battles that were fought Prior to that, he remembers coming to that mountain and he remembers the fire and the smoke and the quaking. He remembers the voice of God. He remembers the Ten Commandments. He remembers the golden calf. He remembers the anger of God. He remembers that the people uh, then moved on to this place called Kadesh Barnea. And at that particular place, he remembers that he and Caleb and ten other spies were sent out to look into the land of promise. And he remembers that when they returned, the ten of them were against going in, thinking God couldn't enable them to take the land. That only he and Caleb said that God could and that they should, therefore, enter into the land. He remembers that. He remembers then God coming and saying that that generation, save for Caleb and Joshua, would not enter into the land. And thus he remembers wandering in the wilderness for about 40 years. And then he remembers Moses dying. And then he remembers that he was the one called to succeed Moses. And so he comes. And so he remembers coming to the Jordan. He remembers the Jordan opening. He remembers coming in. He remembers... Uh, the vision that he would receive uh, from the one who was the commander of the Lord's army. He remembers the battles. And now he comes uh, to this point in his life to share with these people. Because what has happened here is that, is that God's promises have been fulfilled. 
The land was theirs. It was in their possession. It had been divided up among 12 tribes. And now they were to go and enter into those areas. And they were to drive out any enemies, any nations that were still there. And the question for Joshua was, would they? The question for him, would they drive out the nations that were there? Because if they didn't, he knew that those nations would become a snare and a trap to them. He knew if they didn't drive out those nations, then they would get sucked in by them. And so for him, it's like, this has all happened. I'm about to die. You're in your territories and all of that. What can I tell you to motivate you, to inspire you, to call you out so that you will drive out these nations? that you're to do because he knew that if they were faithful to God, if they continued to serve him, then indeed they would drive them out. So you might remember from last Sunday, we looked at chapter 23, which was sort of their immediate history. He took them over the immediate history after coming into the land and began to, to, to tell them about what had happened over the last six, seven, perhaps eight years of their lives during battle. And, and the conclusion of all of that was this, that all of God's promises have been fulfilled in you. Everything that God promised that he will do, he did. He he brought you into this land. And and not only that, he fought for you. He fought for you. Oh, oh, you may have picked up the sword, but wasn't it funny when you picked up the the sword and you could slay a thousand with that sword? Wasn't it funny to you that, that the walls of Jericho fell because you shouted and all of that? Uh, God fought for you. He's the one who who gave this land into your possession. And so he says, now here's what I want you to do. Because of that, why won't he help you now? Because of that, why won't you trust him now? Because of that, won't you trust him? Won't you serve him? So, So don't mix with the other nations. Don't swear by them. But rather cling to God and love him. And, of course, from that, we realize that, that that's the very word of God to us. That he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? God promised that Jesus was come, would come. He came, and he did what he was to do. He fought for us. He fought the very enemies of our soul. He fought sin and death and won that victory. And now the question is, will we continue on? Will we continue to trust him? Will we continue to serve him? Will we continue to love him? And as we look back to see what Jesus has done, the answer for us, the logical answer for us should well be yes, of course. We'll love him. Or as Joshua puts it in this passage today, fear him. They were to fear him. Notice how he sort of begins his conclusion in verse 24 is in verse 14. He says, now therefore, now given everything that I've told you, now therefore uh, fear the Lord. Because what he did in chapter 23 was go over their immediate history. What he does in chapter 20, what did I just say? What he did in chapter 23 was to go over their immediate history. What he does in chapter 24 is to go over their covenantal history. That is the history of God's promises to them. That's why he begins with Abraham. Uh, it's, it's this covenantal history. He goes, goes way back. And at the end, the result of that is, yes, as for me and my house, we'll, we'll serve the Lord. But before he gets there, he needs to invoke in them what he calls the fear of the Lord. Now, therefore, fear the Lord. That comes before serving him. He doesn't want to skip that step. Because just to serve him is, is, isn't really enough. 
It has to be a serving out of fear, which before a serving out of, out of love. Now, what's this fear of God? I don't think it's being afraid of him. I don't think it's being terrorized by God. Now, if he had ended this in chapter, in chapter 23, it might have been just that. Because the, the, the last word in chapter 23 was, if you don't do this, then God's going to abandon you. If you don't do this, if you don't follow after him, then you'll perish in the land. And then if he would said, now fear the Lord, you'd go, okay. But chapter 24 is very different than that. Chapter 24 lays out that which wouldn't cause me to be afraid of God and perhaps serve him out of that kind of terrorized fear, but to love him because he reviews the blessings of the promises of God since Abraham and, and how God has worked in their lives. Now, that doesn't at all mean that, that, that God's a cuddly, cuddly little teddy bear. Uh, he isn't. John Murray, an old dead theologian, uh, taught at Westminster in the 20th century, put it like this. He says, It's the essence of impiety or ungodliness. Not to be afraid of God when there's reason to be afraid. The scripture throughout prescribes the necessity of this fear of God under all the circumstances which our sinful situations make us liable to God's righteous judgment. In other words, if you've sinned against God and you're not forgiven, then fear, terror, really should be your emotion of choice. That would be the reasonable, logical thing. If you're facing God for judgment, be afraid of that. You remember Isaiah, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, what happened? He said, oh, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips in my eye, but my eyes have seen the Lord of glory. So he says, I'm, 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 I'm perishing, I'm, I'm becoming undone. And the only way that he could stand in the presence of God without that kind of fear was that God atoned for his sins. And when he did, he said, stand up and, and listen. You might remember there was a time in the life of Peter. Peter had been out fishing, didn't catch anything. Peter probably saw himself as an expert fisherman, a professional fisherman. That's what he did for a living. Jesus turns out at the wrong time of the day to go fishing and all of that. Jesus said, set out your boats, and so they do. And Jesus said, put out your nets. And you, could, you just get the sense that Peter's rolling his eyes, going, you don't know anything about fishing. You're a carpenter. Um, and they put out the nets and they catch so many fish that it overflows and all of that. And Peter's response, see, if I were Peter, I would have said, do you want to become partners? Right? I mean, this is cool. Uh, you're really good at this. Could, 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 could we, you know, bargain something here? But Peter looks at Jesus and says, get away from me, for I'm a sinful man. Because at that point, he saw the very glory of Christ and he realized who he was. And it shot fear to his, the, from the top of his head to the tips of his toes. And he says, get away from me. And how could Peter ever stand in the presence of God except by way of being ultimately uh, forgiven? Even Jesus said, don't be afraid of the one who can... Uh, who can kill the body. Be afraid of the one who can condemn your soul to hell. 
So, so there's a reasonable fear there. There's a logical fear. There's a logical terror of God as a person sees him unfor- and is unforgiven. But, but I don't think that's this sense here. Because you see, there's another sense of this word fear. Because fear that terrorizes us really is this sense that there's something bigger than us. And now we're in great danger. And it causes us uh, to sit back and, and it takes our, our breath away. It's so huge, so big. But there is another kind of understanding of that fear where there's something so great that it does in the same way take our breath away but rather than driving us away it draws us in it's something so great that rather than driving us away actually draws us in and that i think is what joshua is after here he's saying don't be afraid so afraid of god that you're going to hold him at arm's length and just just serve him so that he'll stay off your back what i want you to do is fear him in a way that means you've been drawn in by him So here's what I want to tell you about that. I want to begin with Abraham, our father. And I want you to realize how it is that you've come into what you've come into. Because here they are. Just imagine this. Here's a group of people that had been enslaved. And now they find themselves living in cities which they did not build. Eating from vineyards and orchards that they did not plant. I mean, if, if, if you didn't know better, what you'd think is this is really a run of good luck. This is really tremendous to think about it. You're living in cities that cost you nothing. You're living in cities that you didn't build, that you didn't sacrifice for. It wasn't your labor. It your, weren't your resources. You're eating food that you didn't plant. It's just there for you. Go out and pick it and eat it. And, and, and you have to ask the question, how in the world did we get here? And so Joshua says, I want to tell you how you got here. It began with this man named Abraham, who became Abraham. And you might be thinking then, oh, then Abraham must have been a very godly man. Abraham must have really deserved God to come to him and and to call him out and to make him the father of this nation. But Joshua says, no, 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 it wasn't like that at all. His family worshipped other gods. He came out of an idolatrous situation. We don't have any indication at all that Abraham was anything other than an idolater, anything other than a worshiper of other gods, just like his family. In fact, one of the most startling chapters in all the Bible, to me at least, is Genesis chapter 12, where all of a sudden, God comes upon this man named Abraham, who's going to be Abraham, and he calls him out, and he says, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. You're going to be a blessing to all the nations of the world. Whoever blesses you will be blessed. Whoever curses you will be cursed. And all of that, this promise, and you wonder, where did this come from? Where did this man come from? Why him? There were all... I don't know how... I don't know what the population of the world was at that particular point in time, but there was more than just one that God had to choose from, why him? And we were never told why him. Other than here, it just says he came from a people who served other gods. And if I'm sitting there, living in a city I didn't build, and if I'm sitting there eating from vineyards and orchards that I didn't plant, and I reflect back that the only reason I'm doing that is because I'm related to this guy Abraham, And that this guy Abraham didn't start out fearing God and serving him. I'm thinking, how did this happen? And then it goes from this because it's the most unlikely of all stories. Because when Abraham was called, he was relatively old. And when he began to explore this promise of God that he'd have many descendants. 
Uh, he was even older, and his wife was beyond childbearing years. And so how in the world did this nation even get started in the first place? This old man and this woman beyond childbearing years had a child named Isaac. And then Isaac eventually found a wife, Rebekah. And it took forever for him to have children. And when he did, he had twins, Jacob and Esau. And God said, this, this promise will go through Jacob. But then you know what God did? God gave Esau a place to possess. And he took Jacob to Egypt, where he and his families would be enslaved for 400 years. And if you're reading along in that story, you're going, I don't think God got this right. I think what he meant to do was give Jacob the land to possess and take Esau and enslave him. But he didn't do that. And as you're looking back through your history as this Israelite man who's living in a city he didn't build and eating food that he didn't plant, and he's thinking, how did we ever get here? Oh, my, from Abraham. But all the way through Jacob and all those years, who would have thunk that we would have been able to get out of that and now into this place of blessing, this land of milk and honey, this great place of rest that will provide for us and every sort of way that we might live under God in this place. How did we get here? And then it was 400 years, and then it was a very unlikely event that got them out of it. This little child Moses was born during a period of time when little Hebrew boys were to be killed. And they floated him down the river, and he ended up uh, being, growing up in Pharaoh's household. How ironic is that? And then he killed an Egyptian and he had to run. And for 40 years he farmed. And then he met this bush that was on fire but not burning. And then God spoke to him and says, I want you to go back. And Moses says, well, how am I going to do that? They don't even know me back there anymore. And I'm not very good at speaking. We'll take your brother. And so they went back. And these plagues kept coming on Pharaoh. But, but rather than making Pharaoh relent, but we think they should, his heart got harder all the time. And then that fateful night, that Passover night, how amazing it is that the blood of that animal would cover the eldest born in the Hebrew households and left, because there was no blood, the Egyptian sons under the curse of God. And then Pharaoh comes and he relents, but only for a while. And there they are at the Red Sea. Surely they're doomed at that point. The army of Pharaoh is coming. The Red Sea's at their back. How are they going to get, escape that? Well, unlikely as it may sound, the sea opens. And they walk through it. And then Pharaoh's army is drowned in the midst of that. And in all of this is laid out in this covenantal history. And then they spend a long time in the wilderness. And you think, how are they ever going to get out of out of that situation. But Joshua goes on. He says, I brought you to the land of the Amorites. You lived on the other side of the Jordan, which would have been on the east side of the Jordan at that point in time. And he says, you defeated even them, and I fought for you. Uh, I, gave their, I gave them into your possession. And then you ran into this guy, Balak, in one of the zaniest stories in all of the Bible. And he says, this Moabite king, Balak, uh, saw you and was going to come against you to destroy you. And he thought the only way to do that was to get God, in effect, to curse you. So he got, he got Balaam, this, this, this well-known, high-priced uh, cursor, and said, I want you to come and curse the people of God in the name of God so that they can be defeated. And, and God, through a series of, 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 of just unlikely events, through a talking donkey, um, got, 
Balaam to bless the people, and, and he must have had to give up his fee uh, because he didn't do his job. He didn't curse them. He blessed them. And God said, see, even through that, there's nothing that can come up against you, whether it's army or whether it's a soothsayer, whoever that is, uh, I bailed you out of all that. I delivered you from all of those things. Then we got over the Jordan, and then you fought against the various ites as that are listed here. I gave them all into your hand. And then, end of verse 12, it was not by your sword or, your, or, or by your bow. I gave you a land which you had not labored in, cities you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and the olive orchards and you, th- that you did not plant. Now, therefore, fear the Lord. Because Joshua's thinking, by the end of all of this history, I should have them sucking air. By the end of all this history, they should be so confounded and so amazed at what God has done that on the one hand, it isn't the terror that comes when you're in great danger, but it's the same breathlessness. It's the, it's, it isn't the, the terror that comes when you're awestruck by the danger. It's, 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 it's the gratitude that comes when you're awestruck by the generosity and by the grace. You see, fear, which is why I think the word fear has been chosen, was chosen by God to, to, to help us with this. Fear always dictates our behavior. There's a sense in which whatever you fear, you worship. Whatever you worship, you obey. For instance, if you're afraid of the dark, uh, even if it's an irrational fear, a phobia, which is the Greek word for fear, by the way, uh, a phobia, uh, you let darkness dictate your life. You won't go where it's dark. You'll only go where it's light. If you have claustrophobia, even though it's a unrealistic, irrational fear of closets, of small places, uh, you won't go into small places. So you can pray for me. I have to get on a plane with my wife this afternoon who suffers from this very thing. But, um, uh, but it dictates, you see, uh, our lives. And so he says, I want you to fear God. Meaning, I want God to be the very one that you worship. And thus I want God to be the very one you obey. That his presence, who he is, what he's done, should be the very thing that causes you to follow and to follow after him. Sinclair Ferguson puts this fear like this. He writes, the fear of God is that indefinable mixture of reverence, fear, pleasure, joy, and awe which fills our hearts when we realize who God is and what he's done for us. For Joshua, God is the creator and judge of all. And he had given them life and land and prosperity. And thus this should elicit joy, gratitude, love, which would lead to joyful, faithful obedience. Joshua said, if I can only tell them who God is and what he's done, that will cause them to revere him, to stand in awe, to be so grateful that they would then serve him. And that's obviously God's plan as well. For instance, he puts it like this. In Jeremiah, in chapter 32, in verse 37, he says, Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger, in my wrath, in my indignation. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safety. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever, for their own good and the good of their children after them. 
I will make an everlasting covenant that I will not turn from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. And I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and soul. God says, I'm not going to cease doing good to them. And when they see the good that I do them, that will inspire them, that will invoke fear in them, that will take their breath away. And they'll follow after me and no one else. And of course, the point for us is that that should be true of us as well. As we think about our covenantal history, how it is that we now enjoy the presence of God, the forgiveness of God, acceptance by God, uh, being able to pray to Him and be heard, knowing that He is with us, the very presence of the Spirit in us to transform our lives, knowing that a day will come when He'll return and we'll be with Him forever. Have you ever thought about how you got there? Have you ever thought about that? How is it that you are a believer in Christ? Just like that Israelite guy who's who's sitting in a city he didn't build, who's eating food that he didn't plant, and he's wondering, how did I get here? And he's thinking, I don't know, there's no good explanation for this other than God. He took this guy who is my father Abraham out of this idolatrous situation and revealed himself in such a way that Abraham believed and he became the father of of my people. And now I sit in this land only because I belong to him. The Canaanites aren't here anymore because they didn't belong to Abraham because they weren't part of that promise because God hadn't chosen one of their fathers in order to have this land. In fact, they're gone. And here I sit. How did that happen? Weren't there other people? Weren't there other nations? Yes, but God in his... Mercy, God in his grace showed favor upon my father Abraham and now here I sit and there is the same sense with you and me. How did you get here? How did we get here? Jesus said he came to seek and to save those who were lost. He didn't come for the healthy but for the sick. He didn't come for the righteous, that is those who viewed themselves as righteous. He came for the unrighteous. And so we realize that there's nothing in us that we commend ourselves to God We were sinners rebelling against him, and yet Christ came for us. Why did he do that? The Apostle Paul said it was was the lowly he came for. He chose the lowly of the world. He called the unwise of the world. That's why he came. We were dead, Ephesians 2 tells us, in our trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapter 4 said we were living in the futility of our minds. There's no way we could figure this out. We thought we were living the right life when in fact it was the wrong life. We were living in the futility of our minds. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says this. He says, once you were darkness. Now, he didn't say once you were in darkness. He says once you were darkness. Darkness defined who you were. You were completely outside of the light of God. And you think, well, how could I get from that to this? Because he says, once you were darkness, but now you're light in the Lord. How did you get there from that place to this place? Ephesians 1 gives us the revelation of God on that particular matter. Verse 3. 
He writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. I read that, and it literally takes my breath away. Because I realize that I'm here as a believer in Christ because of what God planned before the world was made and what then has worked out in history and brought me to a place of believing, of trusting in him. That's astounding. Scripture says of Jesus, greater love is no man than this, that he gave his life up for his friends. The apostle writes, this is, God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. All of that was planned before the foundation of the world. All that was planned before I was even alive. All that was planned before I had done anything good or bad, right or wrong, any of that. All of that was planned. And the scripture said that God chose us, all believers, in Christ to be in him so that whatever he did would be reflected in our lives, whatever he did would be for us. That God chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we might one day be holy and blameless in his sight rather than sinners in his sight and he would see us as holy and blameless in his sight. And thus in love, in the very love of God, he predestined us that as he he set out the destiny for those he put in Christ, he set out our destiny to be adopted as his own children. And thus all who believe in him are just that. But did you ever ask the question, how did you get there? How did you get to believe in him? There are lots of people out there, lots of smart people, lots of nice people, and here we sit believing this gospel. And we have to come to the conclusion that it was the work of God, not our own. You know, that great Wesley hymn, and can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me, for him. To death pursued amazing love. Then the third verse is when he gets saved. Long my hymns tell a story, that's why we still sing them. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine I diffused a quickening ray. I rose. How's it go? Thine I diffused a quickening ray. Went forth. No, I rose. I woke. Jesse, how's it go? Thine eye diffused the quickening ray. I woke my dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was still. I rose, went forth, and followed him. That's a work of God. Now why did God's eye and ray come upon you? Why did he do that? Why is it that he changed your heart? And I have to say, I don't know. 
man, that takes my breath away. And so I sit in the same wonder today as I think that Israelite man sat in Canaan in a city he didn't build, eating food he didn't plant. And I sit here with a salvation that I did not pursue. I sit here with a salvation that came upon me by a work of God's grace. If there's one person I resonate with in the whole Bible, it's Barabbas. Don't you wonder about him? What a weird deal. Here he is. He's an insurrectionist, a murderer, and a thief. And he's sitting in prison uh, to get exactly what he deserves. And unbeknownst to him, probably, there's this funny uh, little law that says during the Passover time, the Romans will let loose one prisoner. And he's not advocating for himself. He's sitting in prison. He has no idea, probably, what's going on out there. And, and, and this rumble comes because, because Pilate really doesn't want to crucify Jesus. He wants to get out of this however he can. He sees him as an innocent man. He sees this as a Hebrew problem. His wife comes and says, get out of this if you possibly can. And so he doesn't want to, want to crucify Jesus. He doesn't really want anything to do with this. And so he realizes, oh yeah, there's this law. Here's what I'll do. I'll give them Barabbas. Certainly they'll take Barabbas. I mean, Barabbas is, 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 is the scum of the earth. Surely he's, he's better in their minds than Jesus. I know they're mad at Jesus. I know they're envious of Jesus. I know all of that. But surely when I give them this choice between this murderer, this robber, this criminal that everybody hates, and I give them Jesus, which, you know, nobody really likes at the moment, but he's not that bad. Surely they'll take Jesus, and I'll be done with this. But amazingly, they take Barabbas, and Barabbas is set free. I mean, can't you just see him coming out of that dirty, dark dungeon, and he's rubbing his eyes, and he's wondering what in the world is happening. He's looking over his shoulders, thinking somebody's going to rearrest him, or somebody's going to kill him, shoot him in the back because he's escaping. What's going on here? And finally, he realizes that the only reason he's out is because... Jesus has taken his place. And I think at that point, he fears God. Now, we don't know what happened to him, but I bet it took his breath away. I bet he trembled. I bet he thought, how can this be? Why am I out here and he's going to be up there? So the point is this for us, that we think about how we got here. And I know, you know, you know me. I'm this dyed-in-the-wool Calvinist. So you know me, and, and, and I know that this kind of stuff raises all kinds of questions for us. And it raises all kinds of questions for me. In fact, the Bible raises those very same questions in Romans 9. How can God do this? Is God unjust? Is this really fair? And Paul says, in essence, don't ask those questions. Don't go there. God's the potter, we're the clay. Just receive it and fear him. Don't socialize it, personalize it. Don't think about all these other people who aren't. Think about you that, that is. Saved and wonder, how'd I get here? 
And that should cause the hair on the back of your neck to stand. That should cause you to shiver. That should cause your breath to just escape your body. And you'd be able to sit, okay. And so we're very quiet before God at that point. There's that wonderful little verse in the back. The Lord is in his holy temple. That all the earth keeps silence before him. Oh, and there's certainly a place for praise and jumping up and down and doing all that stuff and being grateful and happy to God for all that he's done. But there's this sense of holy fear. Not terrorized. But there's something about what God has done and where we sit that draws us to him and just amazes us. And I think the call for us on this morning is to let the chills come, to let the breath go, to sit amazed at what God has done. Therefore, fear him on the night that Jesus was betrayed. He took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body. Just given for you, do this in remembrance of me in the same way he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave this cup to his disciples and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And we think, how did I get here? It was by way of covenant. The first one was with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Before the creation of the world, the Father chose us to be in him. And the Son came. Having authority, he says in his prayer in John 17, over all things, that he might save all those the Father had given him. And then the Spirit comes to each of us personally, to us as a body, comes to us individually and he says, here's Jesus. And he moves in such a way that we can receive and accept and believe. And here we sit. The stunned people of God. To fear him. Let's pray, Father. It's amazing to think what should be our lot. Hell. And then to think what is our lot, which is heaven. And to realize that we didn't get here by our own merit. We didn't get here because we deserve it. We got here because of you and you alone. Father, I pray in the stillness of this moment that you'll work that deep within us. Whatever concerns we have, whatever objections may pop into our mind, that you'd still them. And you'd say, fear me. Father, that our breath would go, that our shivering would start, that we would see 
who we are because of you. And even as we come to this table then, Lord, I pray that you'd separate this bread and this juice out in such a way would cause us to see the grandeur, the wonder, the majesty of our salvation through Christ. His great love. What wondrous love is this? Oh, my soul. What wondrous love is this? Oh, my soul. What wondrous love is this? It caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. Lord Jesus, meet us here, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord's, and he invites to it all those who fear him. All those who understand themselves to be sinners in his sight without hope, except in his sovereign mercy. He invites to this table all those, therefore, who believe and trust in our Lord Jesus as he's offered to us in the gospel freely as the Savior of sinners, the one who came at the bequest of his Father, who had chosen us in Christ before the foundations of the world. And who therefore desire to live now fearing him in a reverent awe before him. I invite for all those for whom this is true in these two sections to come down the aisle to my left, these two down the aisle to my right. Take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup. And enjoy the very gift of God. Please come. Let me ask you to bow your heads to pray together. In a moment, I want us to pray what we commonly know as the Lord's Prayer. It's printed for you out of the English Standard Version. That's how we'll pray it. But as we pray this together, remember that Jesus gave this to us as an outline. And he gave it to us as a corporate prayer. And so as we pray each of these petitions, uh, that we're to have in mind not only our own needs, uh, but the needs of those in our congregation, those struggling among us, whether they be struggling spiritually or with health or in relationships or finances, employment, we would raise each petition on behalf of ourselves and others as well. And together let us pray this prayer that Jesus taught us. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The response to the benediction is this response of Advent that Christ has come, Christ is coming again. Hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Christ is come. Christ is coming again. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.